All right. Good morning, everybody. We are uh, we made it to chapter seven in John's Gospel, and at the beginning, Jesus is in the territory of Galilee. So, if you're unfamiliar with ancient Palestine, Galilee's sort of in the northern part of that territory. That's where Jesus grew up. Right, he wasn't born there, but he was raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And I'm told that Nazareth was probably a town that only had like four or five hundred people living in it. And then uh, to the south, you've got Judea, and that's where Jesus is going to be going today. He's going to be going back into Jerusalem. Now, there's something really interesting about John's Gospel along these lines. If you think about Jesus' public ministry prior to the Passion Week, all right. John is the only one who really focuses on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem prior to that week. In fact, Craig mentioned this the last time he was preaching, that it's John's gospel that gives us these time markers, these Passovers and these feasts, that allow us to measure the length of Jesus' public ministry. Because if we only had the synoptics, we might get the impression that his ministry was only a year long. Because they only talk about that last Passover. But John talks about three Passovers, and today we're going to be looking at a different feast, the Feast of Tabernacles. But this takes place in Jerusalem, and like I said, John's the only one that really focuses on that aspect of his ministry prior to the Passion Week. So let me begin reading at verse 1, and we're going to go down through verse 24. This is John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee... He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man. Others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, and yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with righteous judgment. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to look into the scriptures this morning. And uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would be with us, that you would prepare the soil to receive the word of life, and that we would see you lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, uh, the beginning of chapter 7 is uh, really authentic, uh, you ask me, because you have um, really lends some authenticity to John's account, because you have Jesus' brothers who are not very enthusiastic about his ministry so far. And uh, if you just give it a few seconds thought, I think you would see that uh, growing up being the brother of Jesus uh, or having Jesus as your brother would be kind of difficult. I mean, who wants to live in a house where you're constantly being told, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> um, and now, you know, Jesus is, is his ministry is going and he's, he's gaining some momentum and Chapter 6, we saw people want to make him king, right? And uh, his brothers are no doubt catching wind of all this, and they're just kind of rolling their eyes. And this is exactly how brothers act. I don't know if any of you have brothers. I do. And this is how brothers act. They roll their eyes, and they're thinking, oh, please. You know, Jesus this and Jesus that. You know, Jesus, if you're so great, why don't you go up to this feast of booze, and why don't you show people just how awesome you really are? They're just kind of egging him on, right? And um, in verse, let's see, 6, Jesus says, My time has not yet come. Now, in Greek, they have two words for time. They have chronos, which is measured time, like when you're talking about how long something is going to take. But then they have a word kairos, which means like the opportune moment, the right season. And that's the word that Jesus is using here. He's saying it's not the opportune time for me to go to this feast yet. And then he says in uh, verse 7, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Now, in looking at the context here, it's obvious Jesus is not talking about the world God created. A world here means a sphere of human activity, right, that is opposed to God and Jesus. And I like how Thomas Burton defines world in his, um, in his book, uh, I think it's called Seeds of Contemplation. He says, The world is the unquiet city of those who live for themselves and are therefore divided against one another in a struggle that cannot end, for it will go on eternally in hell. It is the city of those who are fighting for possession of limited things and for the monopoly of goods and pleasures that cannot be shared by all. And it would be a mistake to think that world is identical to secular. It would be easy for us to make that mistake living in a Western society to think that, okay, the world, it it only includes people who either reject God's existence outright or what is more likely, they just don't care one way or another. Um, They're kind of apathetic about the whole God question. But notice that Jesus here, in his context, he is ministering to Jews. And they are a religious people. They are believers in the one true God, and yet some of them, in spite of that, still fit squarely into this world category. It's not about how you label yourself, because you can still have God's name on your lips and then totally live as if he does not exist, okay? 
And that's the world that's opposed to Jesus, no matter how it's labeled. And um, Jesus, after having said this to his brothers, uh, says that he's not going up to the feast. It sounds like he's not going at all, but we find out later that in point of actual fact, he is going to make an appearance a little after it's already started. And before he arrives on the scene, there's some murmuring going on and people are wondering about Jesus and some people. Opinion is divided, right? Which is a sad commentary on our world that the God of infinite wisdom, love and mercy has manifested himself. And people are kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, some people are saying, yeah, he's good. Some people, I, I don't know about him. At any rate, he finally makes it up to the feast. And as is his custom, he starts teaching in the temple precincts, right? And now people are uncomfortable for another reason. They're uncomfortable about his lack of formal education. What, what is this guy doing teaching? Have, he's never studied because if you wanted to be as, according to my limited understanding of the situation, if you wanted to be a rabbi, you had to study under a rabbi. All right. You would you would find a rabbi. He would take you under his wing. He would train you. He would teach you the scriptures. You would learn from him. And then, once you got your you know degree or whatever, you would start teaching as a rabbi. And if the rabbi you studied under you know was competent and intelligent and authoritative, then then that would lend credibility to your ministry, right? Oh, you know he studied under Rabbi so and so, so he knows his stuff. Well, when Jesus starts teaching, he, he sort of points out that he, he has, in fact, studied under a rabbi, um, Rabbi God the Father. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of him, all right? But he has, in fact, had the very best uh, education in this respect. Um, but that, that immediately begs the question, right? And, that, and the question is, okay, well, how do we know? Uh, how do we know that the teaching of Jesus is authentic? How do we know that God has, has sent him? And the way that Jesus answers this question is very fascinating to me because I've listened to many, uh, an intelligent unbeliever who has, who has boasted that in this world they are in search of the truth and they are trying to just objectively find out what is true. They're not letting their emotions get in the way. They're not letting their taste and preferences get in the way. And they have studied and they've looked at all the facts and they've made all the logical inferences. And they have concluded that, you know, this Christianity is bogus and that God almost certainly does not exist. And there's kind of an Now, by the way, I, I'm not if what I'm about to say. I don't mean to imply that we shouldn't have sound minds as believers, because, of course, we should. And I'm not saying that education is bad, but there is an assumption here that. The search for truth is primarily an intellectual affair. Mm -hmm. It's primarily about the intellect and about studying and get, gathering facts. And notice when Jesus is addressing this implied question here, he goes straight to the will. He goes to the motivation. He talks about what is your motivation? What is your will? Because he says, if you are seeking your own glory, all right, Regardless of how educated you are, regardless of how sharp you are, regardless of how well-trained you are, there's going to be falsehood in you. Jesus says it's the one who seeks God's glory, that in him there is no falsity. And then he says, if your will is to do his will. I like what Raymond Brown had to say in this respect. Doing God's will 
involves more than ethical obedience. It involves the acceptance through faith of the whole divine plan of salvation, including Jesus' work. So if we want to know what the truth is, we have to consider not not just, you know, the state of our mind. We have to consider our motivations and we have to consider where our will is at. Now, this becomes really important in verse. Um, let me see. Oh, I've lost my place here. John chapter seven. Let's see. Where is it? I think it's verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? Now, that verse might sort of jump, and this happens in John from time to time. Like, Jesus will be talking, and then he'll say something, and you'll kind of be scratching your head, like, well, that, that really seems like that came out of left field. Like, where did that come from? But notice how he's tying this into what he had just said about the will. If your will is to do God's will. Now, there are Jews there in Jerusalem that are plotting to kill him. That's how the chapter starts. Now think about that. It's clearly not God's will to murder people. That's, that's one of the basic, you know, Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And so these people that are plotting to Jesus, it is obvious that their will is not to do God's will. And therefore it is not surprising that they don't accept his teaching, his teaching. They don't accept that he's been sent by God the Father. That's what that's what's being pointed out here. Now, when Jesus uh, explains that there's a plot to kill him, if the crowd responds with um, incredulity, they say, well, wait a minute. What are you talking about now? Why is that? Well, you have to understand the crowd is composed of more than just the Jewish authorities who are plotting to kill him. Right. The crowd would also include different pilgrims who, like Jesus, have come from different cities up to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. And it, it may very well be that many of these people in the crowd, they have no idea of a plot to kill Jesus, nor are they planning on doing it themselves, right? And so they say, okay, well, what's going on here? And you'll notice that Jesus, now that he's appealed to the will and he's appealed to the motivation, now he makes an appeal to the understanding. He says, okay, well, let's reason together then. Let's think about how this whole thing started. Why is there this doubt and confusion about who Jesus is, and it goes back to him healing someone on the Sabbath, which we looked at in John chapter 5, or it's almost certain that's the incident that Jesus is referring to here. He healed someone on the Sabbath. He broke the tradition of men, and so people are kind of wondering about it. He says, well, we'll look at it this way. If I were to circumcise someone on the Sabbath, no one would have a problem with that, right? And, and circumcision, it's just you're ministering to one part of the body, and that's it. Well, what I did was I ministered to the whole person. And so it stands to reason that this, that this is not in any kind of violation of, of God's will, or more importantly, in any kind of violation of the Sabbath, all right? And then he speaks these words, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And we need to understand that it's not just superficial people who fall into this trap, okay? Now, superficial people do. <laughs> um, they, they do judge according to the appearance, and that is a misfortune. But when you read the scriptures, it's so interesting that so many people who are faithful ministers also misunderstand Jesus. 
they also get caught in this trap of appearances. Take, for example, John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist had his faults, just like we all of us do, but I don't think you're going to be able to make an argument that John the Baptist was superficial. Okay, I don't think that's going to stick. And yet, in Matthew chapter 11, we find that John the Baptist has been thrown into prison, and he is beginning to doubt Jesus. And by the way, I would be skeptical of anyone who would say, well, I wouldn't doubt Jesus if I were in John's show. Okay. I mean, like, you think about John was, Jesus comes on the scene, John has baptized him, and, and in John the Baptist's mind, okay, here's the Messiah. This is the guy that's coming to clean house. He's going to end corruption. He's going to set up shop. And you're not going to see innocent people going to jail anymore. But what happened to John? Well, he's he's been thrown in prison, and he's entirely innocent. And so now he's he's thinking, okay, well, what goodness, what's going on here? And so he sends messengers to Jesus, and Jesus sends the messengers back to John. And what what do they do? They tell John, look, you've got to take your eyes off your immediate circumstances. They tell John how Jesus is restoring hearing to the deaf. He's cleansing lepers. He's restoring sight to the blind. He's raising the dead and preaching the good news to the poor, which are all fulfillments of messianic prophecy. And so he's telling John, John... You can't judge according to the appearance. You've got to judge righteous judgment. And George MacDonald wrote a sermon called The Cause of Spiritual Stupidity, in which he, he identifies because the disciples would do this too, right? Like there's an incident in the in the Gospels where the disciples, they've seen the feeding of the 5,000. They've seen the feeding of the 4,000. And at one point, they're kind of in a hurry to go somewhere, and they have to get in a boat. And they didn't have time to buy bread. And Jesus, when they when they get in the boat, he had just had an argument with the Pharisees. And he tells the disciples, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. All right. And his disciples on hearing this completely misunderstood him because they, they thought that he was talking about the fact that they didn't buy enough bread. Which is, which is incredible given the miracles they had just witnessed. Right. And Jesus points this out to him. He's like, guys, seriously. Like 5,000 plus people with almost no bread. 4,000 plus people with almost no bread. You honestly think that that's what I was talking about. And what McDonald points out is it's really the lack of confidence in God that causes this kind of stupidity on our part. It's a lack of faith. My my daughter in school this week, the, the verse that she was asked to memorize is Pro, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now, I want to tell you, the smarter you are, the cleverer you are, the more educated you are, the more tempted you are going to be to lean on your own understanding. And and that and that's why so many people find... Um, Christianity not only false, but dangerous because they think that, that we're just abandoning reason. We're abandoning the understanding. We just have this blind confidence in God. But the proof is in the pudding, isn't it? If we want to know who Jesus is, this is what Jesus said we got to do. We got to, we got to get on board with God's will. We got to seek his glory. 
We've got to not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And that is the path to truth. If you want to know the truth and you want to be set free by the truth, that is the path to the truth. And that's what Jesus is telling people here in John chapter 7, verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Let's pray. Um, Holy Father in heaven, uh, once again, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here in the park on this beautiful day that you've given us. And... We, we pray, Lord, that you would be, you know, our shepherd here in Emmanuel Baptist Church. We, we pray that you would direct our steps. And we, we pray that we would love you with all of our mind, Lord. We, we do pray that we would love you with all of our mind, all of our heart. And that you would grant us faith in you and confidence in you. And that you would grant us the gifts of peace and joy and love and these would abound and that we would be able to be light and salt here in the city of Richcrest. And we just want to lift up your name and and glorify you and bless your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.